couple of years ago, my wife Kelly and I went with my mother-in-law on a scuba trip to an island off the coast of Honduras. On this trip, Kelly and I stepped way out of our comfort zone to do a technical dive, which means a very deep dive. Um, it was down to a depth that was far beyond our normal ability. You're, you're really supposed to stay around 40 feet. We decided it would be a good idea to go down to 200 feet, right? And so um, some of you may remember that story that I told the first Sunday we were back at church, but on that dive, we were equipped. We were ready to go. We had two large tanks of oxygen, one on our back, one strapped below. Um, we were going to such a depth that we would move through a lot of oxygen, and we would need the extra oxygen as we came back up to the surface to do all the safety stops. Because as you go deeper, the oxygen condenses under the pressure, and so you breathe it in even faster. We had all of our uh, dive computers. We were experienced advanced divers. We had two de- technical dive master- masters with us, and we were all set to go. But there was one slight problem. At about 80 to 100 feet down, most humans begin to suffer something called nitrogen narcosis. Uh, It's called getting narked for short. This is where the nitrogen builds up in your system and you begin to get kind of drowsy and disoriented. So at around 200 feet, you can imagine what was happening in our heads. Uh, Kelly told me that what was going on in her head was she was hearing constantly the sound of when Mario jumps and gets the coins, right? (laughs) Pling! Pling, right? That was kind of what was going on. In my head, all I could hear was my heart beating through my ears uh, because I was so nervous. You get down to a certain level and it starts to get very, very dark. And so we hit our depth and we decided to turn around, but something kicked in in my brain and I was so disoriented that I thought Kelly was ascending too fast. And so I swam after her very, very quickly, causing me to use up even more air and I was out of breath. As I caught up to her, I looked at my air gauge, and because I was disoriented, I realized that the air gauge was saying I was at 25%. My reality, my senses, my feelings, my emotions, and perspective all kicked in, and I turned to our dive master, and I tried to give them the signal that I was low, that I was at a low, low percentage of the tank, but I kind of con- uh, combined it with the, the signal that is I'm out of air. Right? So I was kind of doing this, flailing in the water. Right? So he rushed over to me quickly, wondering what was going on. And he does one quick check at me, and he looks at me funny in the water. And I am freaking out, thinking I'm about to die. So I'm looking at him, you know, telling him I might need his air. And he just taps me on the head, kind of like, hello, McFly. And then he taps what? What, what was I forgetting about? My second tank of air. Hello? And all of a sudden, I got this big grin behind my regulator, and I went, oh, right, I forgot. I was totally fine. In that moment, under strain and stress, I let the reality that I had built in my brain operate as truth, empirical fact. All the while, I was simply blind to the truth of what was happening. Luckily, I realized that I had been wrong, which allowed me to step into the true reality, but you can imagine if I had fought him. I know one story of a diver that decided that they were going to go down instead of up, thinking that they were going down, and the uh, dive master came over to try and tell them that they were going the wrong direction and kept pointing to the bubbles, which went up, but the person was so narked that they refused and pulled away from them and kept swimming down. And that leads to death. Their reality was so strong to them that they decided that they were going to continue in foolishness. And isn't our spiritual walk often the same way? 
Isn't how we relate and operate in relationships often the same way? Today I want to share a story from the Word with you that God intended to speak to us about our need to see outside our own reality. This morning I want to ask you if you will pray with me as a church this very simple prayer. Repeat it with me up on the screen there. Lord, please open our eyes so that we might see. Let's say it again there. Lord, please open our eyes so that we might see. The reality is, is that we often are spiritually blind. And that's what we'll see in our story today. Let's take a look at 2 Kings 6, starting in verse 8. The story of Elisha, or Elisha, Elisha in Hebrew. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, that's Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to him, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. The first thing I want to show us this morning, if you're taking down notes, is this. You can write this down. Spiritual blindness leaves us foolish, fearful, or both. Spiritual blindness leaves us foolish, fearful, or both. Israel and its neighbor to the north, Aram, or what we now know as Syria, they were at war with one another. They fought each other constantly. And the king of Syria had his large army staged in a way that they could attack Israel. They could attack them in a way that Israel would be done for. At the bare minimum, they were staged in a place that if Israel came across them, if the army of Israel came across them, there would be a battle. But God gave Elisha wisdom and knowledge of where the army of Syria was so that Israel could avoid harm. They could stay strong. And this happened, as it said, multiple times. So many times that the king of Syria finally got tired of it. And he looked to his servants and he said, who is the traitor among us? Who is the person that is letting the press know about this stuff, right? This is uncanny. How does this army know where we are going all the time? We have to have a spy in our midst, he thought. Who is the spy? But the servants of the king knew that the prophet Elisha was being given knowledge of God in a miraculous way. So they said to the king, it's not us, it's this guy. We've heard of him. He's a miraculous prophet called Elisha. So let's see what, see what the king does there. Look at verse 13. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dotan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army and they came by night and surrounded the city. You see, the king is so concerned that Elisha is a step ahead and knows where his army goes that he has to figure out something in order to stop Elisha. So what is this great and wise plan that this king comes up with? Let's see. Elisha knows where my army goes, so let's move the army to surprise him. He says, let's send our troops and surround Elisha so we can surprise him. Now, is this bright? 
Is this genius? No, it's foolishness. You guys get this? They are, he's so lost in his darkness and blindness that he thinks repeating the same thing over and over is going to work. He's kind of like Wiley Coyote of the Bible. He doesn't quite get that it's not going to happen. The king of Syria shows us that when you are blind to the ways of God, you act in foolishness. What seems right to you must be right. So you have to act on it. All the while not realizing that by basing truth on your own perceptions, you are simply acting in foolishness. How many of you have ever found this out after the fact, that you've been acting in blindness and foolishness the whole time? Anybody? A few of us. So the army goes and surrounds the city, but then the author switches to a new character. He switches to the servant of Elisha. And look at what happens in verse 15 there. When the servant of the man of God, the the servant of Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. This poor servant wakes up in the morning. Just imagine it with me, right? He's laying there on the floor on on his mat. He gets up and stretches He hears a bird sing. He looks outside and sees some sunlight. Goes outside to stretch. Opens the door up and (laughs) he's surrounded by chariots and horses and men holding spears and swords. And so what does he say? He turns back to Elisha and says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? This poor servant without realizing it, is spiritually blind to the reality of the situation. He is basing everything on his own perception, feelings, and senses. How many of you have ever dealt with a phobia? Raise your hand. Spiders, blood, I don't know. Some people have all sorts of phobias. When that phobia takes over, are you operating in reality? No. You see, when our body tells us something is real... Well, it's got to be real. But we know that there's a reality outside of ourselves. This poor servant was so blind that he was basing everything on his own perceptions, feelings, and senses. Spiritual blindness had made him massively fearful. The sky was falling and there was no way to get out from under its destructive force. Does this sound familiar to any of you? The secular media says that anxiety and depression are the highest diagnosed malady in our society right now. Ten years ago, they said it was going to take till 2020 for that to be the case. Anxiety and fear and depression. And I wonder if it's anywhere near attached to the fact that we are a postmodern world that does not believe in the spiritual. That everything is what's in front of our face as opposed to what might be the reality around us. With so much trauma in a fallen world and relational brokenness that has happened to almost every one of us in this room, some of you more than others, we've all developed a keen sense of seeing danger before it comes, even sometimes when it's not actually going to come at all. We swear that that danger is going to come, and as a response to that perceived danger, we protect I watch it as your pastor all the time. I know people will hurt me, therefore, I'm going to stay away from people. The question is, is how do you ever see a different reality if you're distancing from the very people that can bring you that new reality? 
Oftentimes, we do this and fear drives out our reality because when our mind believes it, our limbic system and our physical senses reinforce it, even if it's not truth. I meet with people all day, every day, who when they see someone who's got no emotion on their face, they imagine that they have negative emotion because that's been their background. We are people that cast a reality in front of us often, not even knowing what's truly around us. And this is what the servant of Elisha was dealing with. What he saw was an enemy that was more powerful than him. And so Elisha needs to respond. But what does he do? Does he berate his servant? Does he tell him he's dumb for being blind? No. He caringly shares with him the truth very simply. Look at what he says in verse 16. Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Much like the king of Syria or the servant of Elisha, when we are spiritually blind and do not step into the view that God has given us of the reality of all that surrounds us, we become foolish, fearful, or perhaps both. But dear church, God wants to open our eyes. Brothers and sisters, he wants to open our eyes to a truth far beyond what we can comprehend what we can sense, what we can see, in both the spiritual but also in the physical. He wants us to know his truth and how he sees things. And this is what the author of Hebrews was trying to get across to us in Hebrews 11. You can look up at the screen here. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, you guys have heard me speak many times before about the definition of faith, and the majority of times that faith is used in the Bible, it speaks of faithfulness, of loyalty, of allegiance to God, not just believing in him mentally. But there is a large piece of faith that is also a a belief in what God says, a trusting that his truth is truth. And this is what the author of Hebrews is speaking of. In order to fully be allegiant to the God of the Bible, we must trust his reality of the spiritual world that exists even though we can't see it. But here is the miraculous love and grace of God. He didn't just ask us to see it with nothing physical for us to understand. Our God loved us so much that he stepped into the physical. He took himself out of what was only the spiritual. God is spirit. And he stepped incarnate into his son, into a world so that we could touch him and feel him, and see him. At the beginning of the book of 1 John, John says, we have touched Jesus. We have smelled Jesus. We have seen Jesus. Our senses have even shown us he's real. God loved us so much that he sent his son into our world so that we as humanity could say God is real and that's who he is. And just to prove his point, Jesus died and resurrected. Kids, how many days later did Jesus rise from the grave? There's the kids in the back I know are paying attention. Thank you, Holden. Three days later, they rose from the grave. he rose from the grave. And then he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, enthroned. And he sent his Spirit into us so that we might be regenerate. Now here's the problem. Christians, tune in here for a second. What we are taught to teach the unbelieving world is just believe in Jesus even though you can't see him. That's faith. But I would suggest to you that God didn't even ask that of us. He sent himself as his son into our world. Jesus wants us 
to be that tangible, incarnate understanding of who God is. We are flawed. We are sinners saved by grace, yes. But we are saints, regenerated in His capacity, in His character, in order to go into the world and show people who we are. That's why this Sunday is so important, and it breaks my heart when I hear people say things like, oh man, Agape Sunday, Hans doesn't go for the full hour, it's not really worth it, you know, it's so hard to sit there with our kids, but guys, this is where the rubber meets the road. Whether we have two visitors or ten visitors or twenty visitors, our love one for another is what shows the world what? That we're his disciples. And so we give that understanding of the spiritual that helps people wrap their mind around the truth that is what God sees. The miraculous love and grace of God is that he did not leave us in our spiritual blindness over and over again through his prophets, through his people, through his son, and then through us, the church. He has shown us what his reality is. Think of what the Bible said in speaking of the Messiah that would come and save mankind. What was one of his jobs? Isaiah 42, 6 through 7 says this, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Guys, some of the most powerful things uh, I see in counseling and in pastoral care are the things that movies make fun of. Um, how many of you seen, have seen that uh, Matt Damon movie where he's the genius? What's it called? Goodwill Hunting. How many of you have seen that movie? There's a scene where Robin Williams, the counselor, stands there in front of him and says, it's not your fault. And he goes, I know, I know. And then he says again, no, it's not your fault. And Matt Damon starts to get angry because he's touching on a nerve. And the scene ends with Matt Damon being hugged by Robin Williams. And he says, it's not your fault. Matt Damon finally accepts it. He was able by his love for this boy, totally secular section or, or situation, he was able to open his eyes to the truth. Church, that's what we are supposed to be, not in a therapeutic way, but in an incarnate way, stepping into the world to share with people that they are blind and they must see. Jesus would open the eyes of the blind. And this is what Paul and Jesus, this is what Paul said Jesus commissioned him to do in that reading that that Courtney just did. He said, Jesus said to Paul, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among who are sanctified by faith in me. I've seen well-meaning Christians tell new believers, well, when you're a strong enough believer and you have enough faith, you'll just feel and know that God is real. But guys, I have sat in enough rooms with enough broken Christians who said, yeah, it was great for the first six months, but Hans, what happens when I no longer feel like God is real? I'll tell them they were putting their trust in the wrong thing. They were putting their trust in their feelings and emotions rather than the truth of God's word and the truth of the Holy Spirit in the midst of God's people. God's mission is to penetrate the darkness so that we might see in truth. And this is what Elisha prayed for his servant. Take a look at 2 Kings 6.16. He said, Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, O Yahweh, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, the second thing I want you to know from this story is this. God opens our eyes so that we might have courage in him. 
Not in what we see, not in what we know, not in what we feel, but in Him. Can you imagine what this was like? Surrounded by enemies that are ready to destroy you. The odds are completely against you. And then you see that God's army is greater. Now, I don't know about you, but I would start thinking through all the war movies, all the spy movies, all the martial arts movies I know, and I would start trying to be like MacGyver from the 1980s to build a bomb and destroy them. How can I do this in the physical? How can I defend myself? My fear would kick me into fight, flight, or freeze mode, but not Elisha. Elisha simply speaks to God, who he knows so well, and says, Lord, please open the eyes of the servant. But then he says something else. Look at verse 18. When the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to Yahweh and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Elisha shows that he understands that even in this earthly realm, we are fighting against something that we can't see. What is it that we learned week before last? In Ephesians chapter 6, it was this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And guys, this is not seeing a demon behind every backache and, and hangnail like we talked about. This is recognizing that the demonic works in the mundane. The demonic works in the institutions and systems around us that point us to materialism and consumerism, to nationalism and racism, to things that separate and divide and destroy. The demonic works in individuals in the midst of relationships unwilling to reconcile. The demonic works even in Christians who think that they are standing up for their rights but are refusing to reconcile. We fight against spiritual powers and authorities. Elisha knew this. Church, I want to ask you, in the last two weeks since we talked about this, has your life changed in a way that you've shown that you know this? Have you engaged in prayer any more than usual in the last two weeks? When we talked about prayer being the number one tool that we use in the fight against spiritual warfare. I want you to ask yourself, have I been on my knees in prayer against the demonic, against the kingdom of darkness these last two weeks? Have you prayed for one another in a way that shows that you know that you and your brothers and sisters around you are at battle against the kingdom of darkness? If not, I would ask you to step into that this week. Elisha knew this. He knew that they were at war, but at a different level. But what's also interesting is not just that Elisha battled spiritually through prayer, but what he prayed for. What an amazing prayer. Why didn't he pray the same prayer that he did for his servants? Hey, Lord, would you open the eyes of my enemies? Wouldn't that have been a cooler prayer? All of them all of a sudden go, and drop their swords and kind of run away. That would have been a cool story, but why didn't he pray that? Why didn't he pray, open their eyes to the truth of your powerful angelic army so that they might run for the hills? Instead, he prays, please blind them. Elisha knew God was so powerful, he didn't need to do things man's way. He could do things his own way, a way that would eventually lead to a greater glory for God and for his people, a greater glory of reconciliation, a greater glory of peace, as we'll see in a second. Jesus knew how to pray like this, didn't he? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if there is another way, let this cup be taken from me. But not my will, but your will be done. 
Do we pray in a way that shows we trust God to accomplish His purposes and make ourselves open to His work, not our own? We need to be humbled when God opens our eyes. And this is what the Syrian army then learned. Would you look with me at uh, 619 there? And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Gulp. They had literally walked into the home base of the people they were trying to fight. What they saw, what they understood is this. A third point you can write down. God opens our eyes so that we might be humbled in ourselves. God opens our eyes so that we might have courage in Him. And God opens our eyes so that we might be humbled in ourselves. And for the Syrian army, what they learned was God does it in His time in a way that will truly humble them. Often the Lord keeps us blind until such a point where we are ready to surrender and trust Him and allow ourselves to see a different truth. Samaria was the northern portion of the kingdom of Israel. And the Syrian army went from being the ones surrounding their prey to being the ones surrounded. Their blindness had made them so foolish that they believed one man. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? The entire Nazi army of Germany. And a dude shows up and says, Hey guys, leave your stuff here at the front and why don't you follow me? We're going to get on some boats, go across the Atlantic, and go into New York Harbor and get surrounded by the American troops. That's literally what happened here. They were so disoriented, so blinded, that they were willing to follow one man. They were willing to take themselves in to be surrounded. That's crazy. That's a crazy miracle of God. What a humbling experience that must have been when God finally opened their eyes. Again, according to the prayer of Elisha. They had to realize that they had been duped. They had no way of winning. Now, the king of Israel, being the wise man that he was, he jumps on this, and he doesn't ask how they got there. He doesn't give thanks that they're there. He doesn't give thanks to God that they were humbled. None of that. Just look at what he does. He jumps in in 621. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, because he was his spiritual father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He seems a little bit excited here, doesn't he? Right? Now, to be fair, there were many times in the history of Israel where he would have been right to strike them down. But here, he lets his own wisdom, based on his own experience and his own knowledge of Scripture, lead him to the place that he thinks God would want. And in so doing, he causes himself to walk in arrogance and blindness. Look at what Elisha says to him in 622. He answered, you you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Elisha knew that you don't shoot someone in the back. That you don't gossip behind someone else. That you don't slander when someone else is not around. You don't hit someone when they're not looking. This was a matter of honor, of justice. And the Syrian army was humbled before God's people. And when that happens, how does God respond? When God humbles someone and they are rightly humbled, how does he respond? Does he respond in destruction? No, he responds in love and grace. 
He responds in mercy. The Bible says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And rather than respond in destruction, God calls his people through Elisha to respond in generosity and compassion. Do you see what happened here? By following Elisha's wisdom, God's wisdom, a better truth was gained. Yes, he could have won. He could have conquered them. But peace was gained because he followed God's truth, not his own. He followed God's wisdom, not his own. Reconciliation rather than warfare. The only outcome that could have been worse for the kingdom of darkness in this case was that if Israel had just destroyed them, many dead, many sent into eternity without Yahweh. The kingdom of darkness would have loved that. And I see the same thing happen, unfortunately, in the midst of the church. Two people in conflict that are supposed to be brothers and sisters at war with one another, not realizing that there are things they are blinded to. Spiritual warfare. They're blinded to the perspective of the other person. They're blinded to the hurt of the other person. They're blind to their own emotions running amok. How I pray that the Lord would help us have our eyes opened in this same way. Dear church, I want us to realize this morning that we often think we see when we are actually blind. We need to ask the Lord to open our eyes. We need to ask the Lord for this prayer to be granted. Lord, please open our eyes so that we might see. And we need to pray this prayer for one another. Let me finish by giving you some very practical things to ponder this week. But let's take a couple of things just to ponder this week. Get your pens and paper ready. And I want you to write these down as they strike you as things you need to ponder. First, I want to talk about what we are blinded by practically. Jot some of these down if they hit home. First, I think we're blinded by the lies of the enemy and his kingdom. We're blinded by the lies of the enemy of his kingdom that surround us. Satan wants us to buy into the lies of this world and the system it spawns. Politics, sports, consumerism, nationalism, racism. Guys, rise above it. Rise above it. Why do we buy into the idea that we, because we're Americans, are better than other images of God? Why do we buy into the idea that we need the next best consumer product? Why do we let Mac, Apple, tell us that we have to have the new phone? Why? We're no different than what the marketers do to our kids, but you have to have the latest Barbie or the latest Lego. We're just older. Rise above it. Rise above the lies of the enemy. We also are lied to in our own limited perspective. Church, each of us must realize, I might see a lot, but I don't see everything. You can always tell when you're falling into this trap of being lied to by your own perspective when you start to lose humility and start to tell other people that your perspective is truth for all people. Guys, I see this all the time when people get frustrated with me because they're trying to get a theological point across to me. When they can't back it scripturally, the next thing they go to is, but everybody else agrees with me. I know it. And then I ask, okay, who are those people and have you talked to them? And their response is usually, well, there's like two people I know that back me. Guys, that's stepping into a place where you're starting to let your own perspective become an arrogant perspective. And we have to let that die. We're also lied to by our own feelings and emotions. Dear brothers and sisters, feelings are not truth. Emotions and feelings are valid 
in that they make logical sense based on our flawed perceptions. When I'm dealing with somebody who's got a heavy phobia and they are sweating and scared out of their mind because of the thing in front of them, I do not look at them and go, well, that's just illogical. Knock it off. If I did, I'd never have anybody return for counseling. It's valid based on their perspective, but it is not truth. It is not truth. Think of the elephant with the mouse that runs through their cage. (laughs) Is that truth? It might be valid for that elephant, but it's not truth. We are lied to by our feelings and emotions. We're also lied to by our experiences. Our experiences are real, yes, but they also don't mean that our experiences are the statistical probability for everyone else. Just because it's happened to us does not mean it will happen to everyone. In some church, I think that we're lied to by ourselves. We make ourselves the center of truth, of what is right, and in so doing, we become blind. But not only are we blinded by these ways, but let me express some things I've noticed over the years of practical ways in which we are blind. We are blind to God's truth. That is why we need his word to give his truth to us. We need his spirit convicting us based on that truth, and we need the historical and orthodox church to help us decide on what the truth is. Dear brothers and sisters, you sitting alone with the Holy Spirit will not make you understand truth. If you are not in his word or you think because you've read through the word one time you know the truth, I am sorry to tell you, we're not that smart. You need his truth constantly flowing through you to change your perspective into his. Secondly, we're blind to our idols. You can write these down. We're blind to our idols. We're blind to those things we know that take our time, talents, and treasure, those things that we turn to for comfort and security. We're blind as to what will really satisfy us. Have you ever sat down and thought about what are the idols in my life that I need to knock down daily? It's a good exercise to do. Third, we're blind to who God is. We turn him into our image and make him like us, or we allow bad theology to form our opinion of him before we run it through the filter of Scripture. In order to break that blindness, we have to run our view of who God is through his Scripture to understand him. Fourth, we're blind to one another's perspective and one another's pain, as I said before. We're blind to one another's perspective and one another's pain. We assume that people are feeling a certain way, and then we act upon it, often in defensiveness, rather than asking the other person what their perspective actually is. Fifth, we're blind to the ways we harm one another. We are so busy pointing the finger outward that we don't realize the fingers that could be or maybe should be pointing at us. When you find yourself being critical of other people around you, stop and think for a second, I wonder what they could be critical of me in. And often we're so blinded to it. One of the things that I have had to learn in this church is that, well, really in life, is that I'm kind of a big guy. Any of you ever noticed that before? And it took about three years into this church to realize that me simply standing and being who I am in front of a person might actually make them feel afraid. Not because I'm a mean guy, but simply because I could crush you. (laughs) Not that I would. I had to realize that others' perspective, it's tough when you look up at somebody, and the second I realized that if I see somebody one inch taller than me, I'm always like, whoa, what is wrong with you? You're a mutant, right? My perspective wasn't reality, and I had to adjust a little bit to help people understand. 
And hopefully you guys have slowly but surely figured out that I'm a big teddy bear. Number six, we're blind to our survival and self-protection mechanisms. We've gone so long in our life in ways to be distracted and disassociated, ways to escape and push away other people that we're blind to it. We're blind to our survival and self-protection mechanisms. We're blind to the lies we've been telling ourselves for years that Satan has put in our minds as a constantly replaying elevator music that tells us we're no good. And we've gotten so good at ignoring it that we forget that it's still there. Church, many of you in here are blind as to the gift and the blessing that you are to me and to others. The reason I know that is because you don't realize that when you're not around for gatherings, we miss you and we love you. You're blind to the fact that we need your gifts and your talents and what you put forth and what God has blessed you with in order to make this body what it should be. We need all of you and we love all of you. And we're often blinded to the eternity in front of us by our focus on the past. Church, we need to become a church that is eternally focused. And so I would ask us again to pray this prayer of, Lord, please open our eyes that we might see. I want to finish with the good news. What is the solution to this blindness? Well, we've already talked about it. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and He has given us His Word. And Psalm 119 tells us what that is. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And when this is the truth through which we run our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings, and the supposed reality around us, we begin to see things clearly. And that truth, by the power of the Holy Spirit, applied within the body of Christ, is more powerful than we can even imagine. Because we faithfully commit to one another to never leave nor forsake. We have the safety to speak the truth in love to one another. Lovingly helping each other see the truth and breaking off the rough edges around us. Often we're blinded because of our vantage point, and so we need others outside of ourselves to speak truth to us. What a gracious gift that is. In the midst of all of it, we realize that we, like Elisha's servant, have nothing to fear, nothing to be fooled by, because we start to see things as they actually are. This was the message of so many different prophets and so many different apostles that we have nothing to fear. Because if we actually open our eyes up to the reality, what we'll see is what's in the book of Revelation. Turn there with me. What we will see is this. We will see the throne of God. Turn with me to Revelation 4. The Apostle John was taken up in a vision to understand the reality of what was occurring. Guys, this book is not just about the future. It's about what is happening in the church from the first century on through. And this was a church that was persecuted and and killed and beaten and falling apart at the hands of Roman emperors. People were being killed in the ring with lions and gladiators. So John wrote to them, to remind them to have courage of God. And look at what he says there in verse 5, speaking of the throne of God that he sees. This is 4-5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and tremblings, peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Church, this is a reality today just as much as it was in 95 AD when John wrote this. We do not have to fear We do not have to walk in foolishness because our God, the one who died and resurrected, is also enthroned, and he is coming to judge the living and the dead, and we are with him. And so we have nothing to fear in a world that can do anything to to us. The world may be able to take our life, but God has given us eternal life, and so we have nothing to fear. When you are taken back by the lies that surround you or may be within you, I would suggest you go to the Word And you ask the Lord to open your eyes so that you can see the truth that he is king, he is powerful, and he is coming back for his people. 